0: Hello, and welcome to Co-Recursive, where we share the stories and the people behind the code. Today's episode is an FP interview. It's focused on functional programming. I'm going to be talking to Tabashish Ghosh. The question I wanted to ask him was, how do you build complex software in a functional programming style? You know, like a lot of things are just little tiny examples of functional programming, like Fibonacci. But how do you build some big, complex, uh, larger pieces of software? And he has a great answer for this. This episode assumes a little bit of knowledge about functional programming, but even if you're not familiar with it, I think it's still an entertaining episode. Enjoy.
1: Debashish is the author of Functional and Reactive Domain Modeling, a book by Manning, and also works for Lightbend. Debashish, uh, welcome to Co-Recursive. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So I have your book in front of me, really enjoying it. Uh, it has a lot of terminology even just in the title, so I thought... Maybe we'd start with some definitions. What is domain modeling?
2: Yeah, that's one of the very common uh, questions which I hear because uh, domain modeling is not what most people think it is. Uh, I would like to, I would like to emphasize that when we are talking about domain modeling, it's really about the problem domain. All the logic, Mm -hmm. all the interactions, all the behaviors, all the objects that you find in the problem domain consists of the domain model. It has nothing to do with the solution domain. So as a software architect, it's the it's our job to model the problem domain into a solution architecture. So also, if you look at the definition that Wikipedia has on domain modeling, it refers to the problem domain. It focuses on the problem domain. So that's the moot point of domain modeling. You need to interact. You need to understand the problem domain and model the behaviors of those domains, and how the various actors or various objects, various entities interact amongst themselves in order to achieve a specific use case.
1: Uh, A lot of this terminology, I think, comes out of uh, domain-driven design. Could you give a a summary of of domain-driven design before we dig into functional aspects of it? Yeah. Actually,
2: uh, domain-driven design also focuses mostly on the domain model. It, uh, It relies on the idea that the domain model is the is the core thing, is the core thing which you need to abstract well in order to have your system up and running and ensure that your system is reliable, your system is maintainable, your system is modularized. So what Eric Evans focuses on in this entire book on domain-driven design is how to come up with a solution architecture for a problem domain that is modularized, that uh, that is robust and that's reliable to all the exceptions, so the core concept is that how to how to abstract the various aspects of the domain model in order to make it more reliable and modularized
1: so your your book i think is is taking off taking taking where he left off and and taking his ideas and applying it to maybe a, a functional programming paradigm so what made you want to explore that kind of intersection of these concepts yeah, actually
2: um, it was sort of an experiment for me because at one point in time, I was working extensively with Java and I was working on a domain model, which was a very complicated domain model for the financial security system. In fact, if you look at my book the uh, most of the examples are from that domain only and when I was mm-hmm. really architecting that system uh, as a as one of the team members i was trying to modularize the system i was trying to i was trying to find out how to how to come up with the best abstraction for the system and incidentally at that point in time i was using java and i was not very familiar with the concepts of functional programming but uh, ultimately ultimately the system got implemented the system got implemented the system got deployed and in fact uh, since the last uh, 10 years or so it's still running so from that point of view, I would say that it was a successful deployment, successful endeavor. But Definitely. But later, uh, later in my life, when I found Scala and I uh, got to know more about the aspects of functional programming, I thought that any domain model, any non-trivial domain model can be modeled in a better way if we apply the principles of functional programming. And uh, this was a passing thought at that point in time and the more i learned about functional programming the more i delved uh, delved into the into the details of uh, libraries like scala z and cats and things like that i was almost confident that yeah functional programming has some features it has some of the some uh, it addresses some of the core issues of modularity which uh, will uh, which will ultimately lead to better reliability and better modularization of a non non trivial domain model so that was really the start so after that um, after that i went back to some of the basic papers of functional programming especially why functional programming matters by john hughes and uh, and ultimately i i thought that i should i should give it a shot and then in my next project i was incidentally i was working on a similar kind of domain and i tried to tried tried my experiment i tried to apply the principles of functional programming and uh, the result was great so that led, uh, one thing, one thing led to the other. And, uh, so here we are. I'm, I'm now almost a confident guy that, uh, that functional programming will work on domain models, which are fairly complicated and which are fairly detailed.
1: You mentioned the, I, this is just an aside, uh, why functional programming matters. Um, that's, that's the paper that kind of goes through a fold, right? Where it does recursion and then it abstracts out the higher order functions until it has a fold yeah actually uh,
2: that's one of the one of the basic papers on functional programming that john hughes wrote i think around uh, 1990 and it uh, it focuses on the modularity aspect it focuses on the laziness part of it and how you can compose programs uh, compose larger programs out of smaller ones yeah fold is one of the examples and But besides that, what, what he focuses on is that uh, functional programming is basically programming with pure values. And when you have pure values, you don't have assignments. And those values really turn into expressions. So functional programming is also known as expression-oriented programming, where you compose smaller smaller expressions, smaller abstractions to build larger ones. And that's one of the foundational principles which I also followed when I tried to apply the principles of functional programming to domain modeling. And so uh,
1: an expression uh, as compared to a statement, I'm assuming, right, where an ex- an expression is like two plus two equals four and, and a statement is like a print line? Exactly. Uh, an expression is something that's
2: pure value. It doesn't have any side effect, whereas a statement or an assignment
1: is one which has a side effect. Okay. So um, if you're doing classic uh, domain-driven design um, in... Java or some object oriented language, right? I'm going to kind of come up with a list of, of like nouns and I'm going to make those classes. So uh, how does that differ if I'm taking this, you know, functional expression oriented path? Yeah, I actually
2: uh, follow one practice where I start from, uh, start from a specific use case. Say you have a specific use case. If you were, Mm -hmm. if you were using Java or if you were using object oriented principles, in that case, you would start with the nouns, right? Mm -hmm. What I usually do when I when I uh, start with the use cases, I usually start with the domain behaviors. I first come up with what I call the algebra of the behaviors. The, uh, The algebra of the behaviors refer to the basic contract which the behavior is supposed to support, which the behavior is supposed to honor. So that's the algebra. It has nothing to do with the implementation of it. And once you have the behaviors, the algebra of the behaviors of a specific use case, you can now think of modularizing them. The related behaviors go into one module. And usually every functional programming language has support for modules. For example, in Scala, we have traits. So you can use traits in order to modularize your behaviors. So the first step is come up with the algebra of the behaviors. The next step is refine the algebra if required. Third step is modularize them into modules. And the next step is to think of the compositionality aspects because those behaviors are not standalone ones, right? Those behaviors need to compose. Those behaviors need to be composed semantically in order to come up with larger behaviors. And how do you do this composition? There are multiple semantics of compositionality. For example, mm-hmm. if you have, if you have, if one use case has four steps, you may be you may be able to do all those four steps in parallel or you may have mm-hmm. to do them sequentially so these these all of these lead you to different algebras of compositionality in the first case when you can do everything in parallel you can go for the applicative model of compositionality you can use applicatives in order to execute things in parallel while if you have a strictly sequential compositionality mode In that case, you need to go for monads. You need to go for monadic compositionality. So I have given several talks and one of my talks is also coming up on actually it's on domain driven design, DDD Europe, which is coming uh, early next month. And I'm going to speak about the same thing, how to start with the algebra of a use case and how to define the compositionality without going anything without knowing anything about the implementation of each of these functions. The algebra themselves will define the compositionality semantics
1: for you going through your book one of the things i appreciated was how far you take things without actually doing an implementation of the function um but but rewinding a little bit so you use this term algebra and i think that coming to terms with what that means is at least for me was a little bit tricky and maybe for our listeners so let's define an algebra. An algebra, like an example I think you had was like the natural numbers under an addition operation. Is that an algebra? I would go for a slightly more basic
2: one. Suppose I I Mm -hmm. consider a set, a set of objects. Mm -hmm. When I say a set of objects, I don't specify what type of objects is that. And I can actually define an algebraic structure based on a set. But this definition nowhere states what type of objects the set contains. And I can define operations on this set without going into the details of the implementation of the type of object. So one, so this is the definition of the algebra of sets. So one of the, one of the specializations of this definition, one of the specializations of this algebra is to define a set of integers. So when I'm, if I can, if I can define my behavior at the abstract level of a set, in that case, I'm doing an algebraic programming. It's becoming much more generic. One, if I if I take an example, consider the consider the definition of a monoid. If we if we look at the contract of a monoid, it's completely generic. It's completely parametric on the type of the type which it encodes. We call it, say, a. Let's let's define um. Let's define a monoid. Okay, so uh, a monoid is an algebra which basically supports two operations. One is the identity, and one is an associative append operation. So any object for which you have support for these two operations form a monoid. And this definition is completely generic. Whenever we define a monoid in, say, Haskell or Scala, we define it in terms of a parameter type, type parameter. We call it parametric polymorphism. The type monoid, the algebra of monoid, is defined in terms of a polymorphic type, say A. We don't have any constraint on what this A has the only thing which we need to look after is that this monoid will support two operations one is the identity operation and the other is a is an associative append kind of operation so we can define and we can define a monoid for integer then we are specializing the algebra for the integer type in that case suppose we define uh, define a monoid for integer addition in that case the identity is the is the number 0 because adding zero to any number gives you the same number and the uh, the append operation is the operation of addition you add two more add two numbers to get one more number so that's the asso- and addition is as- associative so here i have defined a monoid for the class of integers where we derive from the algebra generic algebra of a monoid not only this the, uh, since I mentioned about the term associative, this is one of the laws of the mona- monoid operations. A monoid has to, a monoid, uh, any such algebra, any such, uh, any such generic or parametric algebra usually is governed by a set of laws. For example, in case of monoid, we have the, have laws for identity operation and for the addition operation or append up operation, which has to be associative, binary associative. So, These are the lawful algebras. A monoid is an example of a lawful algebra. So my point is that if we can abstract our domain behaviors in terms of these algebras, in that case, our behaviors become much more reusable. Our methods become much more reusable. And uh, we can reason about these in terms of the laws which these algebras honor.
1: So in some ways, um, I think that these algebras, like so the algebra of of a monoid is, you know, can be specified by a trait or a type class. And in, in another way, it's sort of like a, like a design pattern that you might see in the object-oriented world, do you think? Like, it's a, it's a pattern you can pull off the shelf. You can see that my, my money class fits this pattern, so I can extend from, from monoid.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that you, uh, that you mentioned about the term pattern. In fact, I call, I call uh, these algebras the patterns of functional programming. So if you go go to the uh, canonical definition of a design pattern, which Christopher Alexander coined, you will see that a pattern is a solution to a problem in context, right? So mm-hmm. when you when you define a pattern in terms of functional programming, you have a very clear delineation of this pattern thing and the context thing. The pattern is the algebra, and the context is one of its implementations. So given you mentioned about the money class, A money class provides, gives you the right context to implement a pattern in terms of the two operations, which money supports in order for itself to become a monoid. So money can be a monoid, but that's an instance of a pattern. The basic pattern is monoid itself. So I call these algebras, these lawful algebras, the patterns of functional
1: programming. And the interesting thing is, I mean, to me, design patterns, like from the Gang of Four book, you have to, you have to implement them. If you want to use the decorator pattern like you implement it, whereas if you want to use a monoid, uh, you don't have to implement it, right? You can you can use a, a parametric monoid trait and kind of you get this uh, behavior for free. Exactly. Do you
2: agree? Exactly. In in fact, I gave a talk in December in at Scala Exchange where this was the theme of the talk. The functional patterns and their implementations. So they are actually, I mentioned that uh, the patterns which are there, which we, which we learned in uh, the gang of four book using Java or C++, you need to write lots of boilerplates. Every time you implement a decorator pattern, you need to, need to write lots of boilerplate code, which needs to be repeated everywhere, repeated for every context. But here you straight away get the algebra as a reusable artifact. So that's the
1: beauty of a functional programming pattern. Okay, so the the algebra uh, of a, so the, the monoid. There's an algebra of a monoid. It has certain things you can call on it: identity, associative operation. Um, but then you also talk about kind of the algebra of your of your problem, I guess, or the algebra of your of your design. How does that differ? Yeah,
2: does actually, I, uh, what I what I uh, like to say is that uh, when I define the algebra algebra of a monoid, the algebra of any abstraction. Consists of the data types, the operations it supports, and the laws it honors. These three are the core things of an algebra. So consider if you consider this and and this definition is valid whether you consider a monoid or a specific abstraction for your domain. For example, if you have if you have the domain, if you if you have a domain-specific abstraction, say you are doing you are modeling a trade, securities trade. In that mm-hmm. case, a securities and abstraction supports a number of operations. And each of those operations are uh, take a set of values, return some values. And those operations are bound by some laws. For example, when you are doing a, doing a trade in a stock market, you are bound by the laws of the market, right? There are various laws which you need to honor in order to execute the trade. There are the laws for computing taxes and fees, then there are geographic, geography-specific
1: laws, etc. So, so how, so being, how are laws different than than a business rule? Laws are the business rules. The various okay.
2: business rules are laws, and they are part of the algebra of the algebra of the domain. So, when I'm modeling a domain, and uh, when I'm saying that I'm defining the algebra of the domain behaviors, I'm defining the types, I'm defining the operation and i am defining the various laws which uh, which that particular behavior needs to honor now one thing uh, now the point is our idea is to make these laws verifiable right make the algebra verifiable much of this we can do through types for example say uh, genericity or parametric polymorphism gives you a tool to make these make some of these laws verifiable For example, you can put constraints on the type parameter. For example, say you are defining a behavior which takes a data type, which takes a type of trade, which takes a type of an account. But Mm -hmm. this account may have some specific constraint associated with it. Uh, uh, For uh, for securities trading operations, an account can be of multiple types. It can be a client Mm -hmm. account. It can be a broker account. It can be a trading account. It can be a settlement account. But the, but this account, which this behavior takes, maybe it has to be of a specific type. So in that case, we can use type constraints. We can constrain the parametricity of the type and enforce the law there itself. The advantage is that we are having, we are enforcing the laws statically and we don't have to write a line of sing, single line of test for it because we have encoded the laws as part of the type system. This is in fact so how... one, of the, one of the reasons why I'm, uh, why I'm uh, much more excited about uh, dependent types, languages like Idris. You can do, you can do a lot more with those, but even with Scala, you can, you can go a lot of way. And for those laws, which you cannot verify it with your type system, you can do it through your algebraic properties and plugging in and plugging in a property based testing suite.
1: So for, for type constraints can what kind of type constraints can you do in scala or do you need dependent types or do you need what
2: no actually uh in scala say uh, if when when you are defining an abstraction uh, which is uh, which is parametric on a type t you can specify that this type t needs to satisfy this constraint this type t needs to be a it, it has to be a subtype of a trading account so in mm. that case the compiler will ensure that you cannot pass any other type of account When you are defining the abstraction, or when you are implementing the abstraction, so the compiler acts as your tester. The compiler writes the test for you. You don't have to do anything for it.
1: It's funny. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Idris. I'm actually I'm doing an interview with uh, Edwin uh, later uh, next week. Actually, it'll be interesting to talk to him about Uh, Idris. Let's. I think I think it would be helpful if we if we dig into a specific example. So I have your book open, Mm -hmm. and this might be a little challenging over audio, but. You have a you have this trait, account service. Mm-hmm. An account service takes uh, three type parameters: account, amount, and balance. So, I think this is what you're describing, right? The the actual account type is actually just a type variable. It's it's not defined in the implementation of this trait. And then yeah, yeah. This idea actually
2: stems from the uh, from the same idea that I was talking about the the theories of algebraic development when i'm when i'm defining a behavior when i'm defining a trait a a module or a behavior i have no idea what my account entity will end up with right i don't have any idea about the implementation
1: so that makes sense so when you're saying sorry just to summarize when you're saying i start my domain modeling by doing the behaviors what you mean is you're not even writing out what the what the account type looks like. You you're starting with this trait where it's totally parametric over over the type of account. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So
2: I constrain so, I constrain the implementation when I when I when when I'm going to write the implementation for that trait. But uh, initially, I start with only the algebra. And uh, as far as the algebra is concerned, I parameterize uh, anything and everything which comes to mind and which. Might play a role in the domain model. Some of them may go away in uh, when I do a refinement of the algebras. But I don't want any of the implementation constraints to creep into my algebra definition
1: of the algebra. So this makes the trait it it makes the trait sound very abstract, but it's interesting in your example. So you do this trait that's parameterized over account. It has a debit and it has a credit, right? And so these are two methods you can call that take an account and an amount. Right. And then uh, return an account. And the interesting thing is, there's no implementation for these. But then um, you further use that to define a transfer method. Um, right, right, right. The
2: transfer method doesn't need the implementation of credit and debit, right? Exactly. So that's the that's the point of algebraic development. I have a more uh, meaty example possibly uh, later uh, later in the book, where I talk when I when I uh, Talk about uh, trading systems, and uh, mm-hmm. I also repeat that repeat that uh, kind of repeat that same example in most of my talks, where it's uh, where it models models a use case of a, a trading system. It models the, in fact, the the various steps a uh, security goes through in order to uh, starting from the client order till the trade is done. So this entire use case can be modeled using pure algebra and without any constraint of implementation on it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a good example.
1: What, what's the advantage? Um, I guess what's the advantage of writing my transfer method, um, without even knowing what an account is? Yeah, the advantage is abstraction. You need to, you need to,
2: you need to develop at the proper level of abstraction because if you, if you pollute your algebra with implementation constraints, then later it becomes difficult to generalize. For example, if I, if I have a complete program based on the algebra, For some definition of the program, say it can be a single use case also. In that case, I have lots of flexibility later when I go into the implementation phase. For example, I can define my algebra in the form of a free monad. And then I can have multi, and when I have the free monad, it's just a pure data structure. There is no semantics in it. It's a pure data structure. And then when I define the interpreter for the free monad, I have the flexibility of Doing all sorts of implementation constraints there. I can even have multiple interpreters. In fact, that's a very common, common technique when uh, you use one of the interpreters for testing. For example, in my algebra, I return uh, for some of the methods, I want to do them non-blocking and it returns a future. Could you explain what, what a free monad is? Yeah, a free monad is one of the, one of the techniques to separate, decouple abstraction from the implementation. So what you do is you define you define each of your each of your behavior as an algebraic data type, and then by then by some magic you can you can make each of them monadic. It's difficult to uh, do the details over an audio, but yeah. <laughs> for, for the time being, let's say that you have some magic which turns each of those abstract algebraic data types into a monad. So the moment you have the monads, you can compose all of them. Using a for comprehension kind of syntax because, and this way you can define the exact sequence of the use case. You can define a for comprehension, which will define the sequence of your use case just from the algebraic data type without having any semantics attached to each of them. So when you have the final for comprehension, you have the, you have the full use case, but you have Have it as a pure data. It's just another algebraic data type you have. And now you can write an interpreter or you can write multiple interpreters for this free monad. And in the interpreter, you can come up with all sorts of implementation specific constraints that you wish. For example, I may, I may define, I may have an, I may have a trading process defined as a big monadic structure and I'm going to define an implementation for it. And my implementation, I can choose to dis- I can choose to base my implementation based on future, or I can choose to base my implementation based on um, Cats IO, or based on Monix task, or based on Scala Z task. I have this flexibility when I go for my implementation, and my algebra is completely unaffected. I have a generic algebra which models the entire process. And then I have multiple implementations. So this gives you the flexibility to to decouple the algebra from the implementation. So it makes your code much more modular.
1: Does that mean, it seems like the free monad is is the ultimate example of of what you're saying here, right? Taking the the, um, algebra and the actual implementation totally apart um, into separate steps. So should we always, why doesn't your book just say always do everything? As like a DSL written in a free monad style. Free monad is one of the only one of the techniques.
2: It has its it has its disadvantages also. Uh, so uh, another technique is what we know what what we call the tagless final approach. If you Google for tagless final, you will find lots of papers on it. That's one other way to decouple your in, decouple your algebra from the implementation. The plus point the the drawback of free monad is is that it's not it's not easy to compose multiple free monads
1: mm. because
2: in case of in uh, when you have a, a fairly complex domain model you you have multiple use cases right and those use cases may again interact with each other so in that case there are there are situations where you may have to compose multiple free monads and that's not easy that uh, at least in at least in uh, scala you need to write quite a bit of boilerplate code in order to compose multiple free monads. So can you compose them after you interpret them? That uh, that loses the uh, loses the benefit. I want to compose mm-hmm. it before interpretation. I want to build a bigger abstraction out of smaller ones before I mm-hmm. interpret the entire thing. So uh, so the uh, the plus point with free monad is that a free monad is stack safe. You can implement a free monad in a completely stack safe way. Your stack will never blow out. And that's mm-hmm. that's a disadvantage with the tagless final approach tagless final is not stack safe but tagless tagless final are easier to compose so there are uh, there are all uh, trade offs these are all trade-offs and you need to choose the choose whatever option fits for you but uh personally personally in recent times I am using more of tagless final approach than the free than the free monads because of compositionality
1: okay so uh i noticed that you you in the past you wrote a book about uh, dsls um yeah so i was just curious uh how does this relate um it, it seems like a you know a free monad or tagless final is is a way to write a dsl
2: yeah actually true actually true when i wrote when i wrote the book on dsl i was not uh, aware of uh, some of these techniques of free monads and tagless final maybe they were also not very common commonly used at least on the jvm so uh, yeah today if i if i want to write a second edition of that book i will definitely consider using free monads and tagless final approaches to encode the dsl in fact uh, uh, there are some examples uh, there are some examples in the cats ecosystem where uh, where they have they have uh, developed uh, dsls based on free monads and based on uh, tagless final approach
1: Interesting. Yeah. I I wondered if there was a connection there. Um, So, so rewinding back, right. Uh, You know, we have this account service example where we have this trait um, and it, and it's, it's parametrized over the account and also the amount and the balance. Like basically all the, all the nouns are, are just type parameters Mm -hmm. in in your example. So um, we have these uh, methods uh, let's say we, so, so far we have debit and credit and transfer. And so debit obviously adds, you know, debit takes money off an account, credit, uh, adds money to account and then transfer just sort of composes the two of them. Right. So if I give you two accounts and I say, I want to debit this one and credit this one. Um, so this is our example. Now let's say that we have this and, um, because of our business requirements, we actually need some sort of uh, configuration. So we need um, before we before we debit, we need to look up some value in some sort of configuration. Uh, how would that change things? Yeah, actually, there's there's once again there's
2: some algebra for that. In order to inject configurations, there's a reader monad. You can use the algebra of reader monad to do dependency injection in functional programs. Uh, I think there there are some examples also in this book and uh, or if you google for reader monad dependency injection you will get lots of examples you can you can compose compose that algebraically too you can inject your inject your uh, dependencies or inject your configuration parameters uh, completely algebraically as part of your algebra when you are defining the algebra you can define what to inject and uh, the the precise implementation will follow as part of your implementation of the trait
1: so how do you uh... What's your opinion on uh, using this kind of reader monad versus uh like using your standard dependency injection like off the shelf wires things up when it builds the object
2: no actually I prefer to use the use the power of the language whatever comes with the language and reader monad is one of the nice abstractions which I find and um, if i if my language supports a seamless implementation of a reader monad and if it offers then I usually prefer that in, uh, uh, instead of going for some libraries or frameworks.
1: The reader, then you're passing in to the, like when you run the function, you're passing in things where if you use a more traditional dependency injection style, uh, you usually have some class, right? And That's you're right. doing constructor injection. And then calling the methods. Right, right. Here,
2: uh, when if if you are if you are if you are in the functional programming world and using things like Reader Monad, the beauty of this thing is that all of these things compose because mm-hmm. all of them are based on functions. So Reader Monad, Reader Monad is a Monad. List is a Monad. Option is a Monad. So here we have this basic general algebra of a Monad which embraces all of these things. So whatever you do. So, uh, You, you have the ability to compose monads in some way or the other, but beware. Not all monads are composable. You need monad transformers for those things, but generally monads compose or applicatives compose, or I should say that functions compose. So that's the, that's the basic building block, the compositionality.
1: If we go back to that example and now, so before we had, we credit an account and the return type is a try of account because the uh the you know the account could be closed or something so we we return some sort of error status and now we want to have this reader t so now we have a reader of try of of account and now you've mentioned uh monad transformers could you kind of expand on how that works
2: yeah actually you can you can uh, compose multiple monads using a transformer say you mentioned about reader t you can use reader t to compose reader with some other monad and the and the result is also a monad. So that's the advantage of using monad transformers. You can compose composite monads out of multiple simpler ones. So you you can so you can structure your program monadically, and yet you can use the power of both the monads together.
1: I guess as as we add requirements, does that mean you know we're gonna end up with like a you know a, a stack of of transformers that's like reader writer state exactly.
2: either exactly exactly that's the idea that's the idea in scala it's a uh, after a certain time it becomes a little more cumbersome because of uh, because of some lack of type inferencing but that's the idea yeah you can compose uh, multiple monads using monad transformers and as your requirements increase you can you can go on adding adding stuff adding adding uh, e- adding elements to the stack and in the context of this uh, i will i will say that there are there are some alternative techniques also using mm-hmm. uh, besides, uh, since using a basic monad transformer uh, turns out to be a bit of var- verbose in scala there are some additional abstractions which people have come up with for example there's this uh, f monad eff if you google mm-hmm. it, google for it you will you will find it there's this f monad which which implements uh, implements one of the recent papers of Oleg, uh, where he has where he is talking about the talking about some uh, some freer what what he calls them as freer monads, more free monads kind of thing, where you have where you can encode all of your monadic stuff in inside one monad and then you peel off as you need, so compositionality gets a bit better there. But for all practical purposes, I have found that monad transformers come up, uh, come up as a, as quite a handy option.
1: What, um, if we have this big stack of, of monads, uh, what does that encode? Like in our, I mean, we're talking here about domain modeling, but what does this represent? Sequentiality, sequential, com- sequential composition
2: when you have uh, when you have a monadic monadic comprehension you uh, you have uh, you you can execute the various steps in sequence so one step one step completes and then the other step can begin so that's the that's the basic uh, basic principle of a monadic composition and suppose you have uh, multiple monads stacked together and when you mm-hmm. when you do this sequentiality you you can directly reach to the reach to the innermost monad with a single step of comprehension so that way you reduce ver- verbosity and without using monad transformers you need to you need to peel off each layer successively one by one so your code verbosity increases it becomes much more verbose and after a certain a certain uh, number of elements in the stack it becomes almost unbearable
1: and it, it allows like sort of a, a factoring out of of certain of certain common things that aren't part of the business domain, I guess, right? Like uh, you don't need to have specific exception handling because you have that, that try or that either in there and it will short circuit on its own without having to throw exceptions. For instance, exactly. The exception,
2: the uh, happy path as well as the exceptional path, both of them are taken care of by the, by the, uh, by these abstractions themselves. You don't have to write specific cases. You don't have to write uh, specialized branches of code in order to encode the exceptions.
1: So I guess we have our we have our account service example. It's it's parametric over these types and now our debit and credit, you know they may return some they return an account but it's within this with within this transformer stack. Um, so at what point do we start writing implementations of, of the account or balance or et cetera? yeah once you once you have the
2: algebra defined once you have the total abstraction defined then you are satisfied with the algebra in that uh, then you can you can uh, start writing the implementations and uh, the usual technique which i follow is that whenever i write implementation for an abstraction i keep an eye on the testability part of it so for example uh, suppose uh, suppose i want to i want to have um, as part of the implementation or suppose, uh, let, 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 me start from a uh, bit early. Uh, suppose I have, uh, I, I need a method. I need a function which needs to return a future.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I can, I can have it, uh, I can have this future thing as part of my algebra, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The disadvantage is that whenever, uh, if you have future, if you have an abstraction like future as part of your algebra, in that case, when you write tests for this abstraction, you need to you need to have those execution context and you need to define futures, right? Yeah. If you if you uh, kind of think of future as a monad, which people tend to think of, then it's better to have your algebra defined in terms of a monad instead of a future. The advantage is that in your implementation, you can specialize the monad to a future, and for the testing part of it, you can specialize the monad as an identity monad so in that way your test code becomes much more simpler it becomes much easily testable without any of the engineering or any of the intricacies of having to deal with execution context and futures
1: okay and actually, i like this idea because um i i have this problem <laughs> but uh but um and I, I think I know the answer. But let's say I have, I have some method, and um, right now it, uh, it does things. It uses task, right? It's a Monix task. It's, it's yeah. actually a moment, And then um, inside it, it calls a bunch of things, which are all async and, and return task. But let's say it, it calls a method on task, like to say gather unordered, right, which kind of does them serially. So, or sorry, it does them in parallel. So I mean that that seems to limit me, right? I can't I can't just have it over some generic type because I'm actually making some assumptions um based on the type it is in the in the service. Exactly. Exactly. So that so, means uh, I'm doing something wrong, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah, the idea is to keep the algebra
2: as generic as possible because if you have if you have a generic algebra then it's easier
1: to modularize, easier to write tests also. So in this case, I guess because because they can be run out of order they should be like applicative and something should magically run them out of order I don't right know. right yeah, th- there are apis if you look at
2: the latest cats release there are apis where you can run things in parallel if it's if it's an
1: applicative there's okay. a parallel parallel type class i think which has recently been released so i should do things in terms of that and then in my tests in my yeah. tests i don't need to actually use an async Operation. Yeah, using using
2: using things like monix as part of your unit test uh, doesn't make much sense to me. So,
1: it doesn't make sense to me. It's just it's just where I live. When I when I open up my ID, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, an interesting uh, something I really liked in your book, um, which I had heard of before but but hadn't really quite understood, is uh, phantom types. I wonder uh, if you could explain phantom types. Yeah, actually, uh, phantom types are there
2: for, uh, there to satisfy, to honor some of the constraints. It's not a, it's not a business type per se. It doesn't have any business connotation, but the trick is that you can, you can use the power of the type system in order to ensure that invalid abstractions are never instantiated. Okay. Do you have an example? Uh, right now. <laughs> I don't remember any example and it's difficult in the audio, but uh, yeah, I, there was a very nice paper by, uh, uh from Jane Street, uh, OCaml, uh, make illegal states unrepresented, unrepresentable. I think the title of, title of the article was that. It was, uh, it was written by, uh, the OCaml person from Jane, Jane Street. I forgot his name. So, uh, yeah that uh, that has a nice example and i think in my book also there's an example where uh, where i talk about uh, where i talk about how to uh, possibly it was an it was a use case for uh, loan approval or something like that where where it was uh, it was not possible to pass the uh, pass the uh, incorrect pass an illegal state as part of the api
1: yeah i think i think that's exactly the example so um, you have like you have like a loan application process and you have some sort of loan object. And then uh, the the key thing, I think you're introducing a type uh, that doesn't do anything except it, you know, enforce in the type system uh, something like implied. That's what I was
2: telling that it doesn't have any business connotation. The types don't have any business implication. It's there in order to, it's, it's there. Just in order to uh, ensure that the user cannot uh, pass anything to the abstraction which is illegal, so the yeah, so the illegal states are by definition inadmissible. So that's the basic basic spirit of function. Uh, that's the basic spirit of phantom types, making illegal states unrepresentable.
1: So this example, I, I'll just describe it because uh, I think it's kind of neat. So, you, so let's say you have a loan. And it has to go through, like, two, two phases of approval. Um, so this loan object goes into approval stage one, and it comes out with, like, this approve, you know, bit flipped, right? And then it goes into the second approval stage, and, uh, it, you know, there it gets this bit flipped. But the, the problem uh, with that, right, is, like, you never want it to go to, to stage two if it hasn't first hit stage one. I, I may be butchering people from the book. Right. So the idea is we add a we add a type parameter, and the type parameter just says like uh, like stage one, stage two. For instance, it's like a sealed trait of two different stages. And then you you make this loan have this type parameter stage one, and then when you return it from stage one, you you actually just return a new object which has the type parameter stage two. It it's actually the exact same object, right? Right. 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 Um, exactly. Exactly. But it means that you can never write code like it's almost like a developer ergonomics thing, right? Yes. A yes, developer exactly. can never write code that calls the second stage if they have an object that's in the first stage.
2: Yes. Alternatively, you could do this validation in runtime, uh, in the in the in the as part of the business logic. But I thought that doing it as doing it through the type system was kind of neat because first it uh, enforces this enforces these uh, constraints during compile time. You don't need to write any tests for this. So kind of neat, I thought, this technique of using phantom types to enforce constraints.
1: Yeah, that's very true, right? So you could have your stage two just checks a flag and says like, oh, stage one wasn't passed. Let's return an error or whatever. But the phantom type makes that impossible, right? You're encoding that, that if statement actually into the type system.
2: Yeah. Once again, that philosophy that the compiler will be your tester. The compiler can test your code. You don't need to write anything.
1: I thought, I thought it was a great example and a great uh, phrase, make illegal states unrepresentable. Um, yeah. Actually,
2: this phrase was first used by, used by Yaron Mansky, uh, mm-hmm. Yaron Mansky of uh, Jane Street. And, uh, I think I acknowledged it also uh, in the book that it's, it's not my terminology. It's, Used from it's. It was first used by Yaron Mensky in a blog post on phantom types in
1: OCaml. Yeah, it's a quote. Um, so, how about a uh, smart constructor? What's a smart constructor? Yeah, smart constructor is supposed to
2: abstract you from uh, from uh, the from some of the. Once again, it enforces the construct uh, in, enforces the contracts when you are constructing an object the one of the one of the core ideas of domain driven design is that when you have a domain object it cannot be an invalid one mm-hmm. uh, the the constructor should ultimately spit out a completely validated object and the idea of smart constructor is to uh, is to act as a layer on top of the basic constructor uh, to enforce these constraints so um, so yeah uh, so in one sense uh, if you have a, if you have a if you have an object a the constructor always gives you an instance of a but the smart constructor can give you an option uh, can give you an instance of an option a or uh, or an either or something like that indicating that the construction process may fail also because not always you can get a get a fully validated fully constructed object fully valid object out of your Construction process. So instead of throwing exceptions, which are not referentially transparent, a better idea will be to uh, indicate it once again as part of the type system that I am returning an option A, which means that it it may have failed. So the idea of smart constructor is to is to make this make this claim that uh, uh, if I if I hand you over a fully constructed domain object, then it will be a valid one.
1: So. Um... An example, maybe. So, how would you do this? Let's say that you have your your account, and you want to create an account, and you pass in uh, a money, which is your starting balance, but you want to enforce that that amount can't be negative. How would you do that?
2: Yeah. So that's part of the validation. All these validations will go in the smart constructor, and if any of these validations fail, then you return uh, return a different data type. Means you return I. Uh, Either a disjunction like either or you return uh, an option or some something like that, or a try also. So uh, the idea is that once again, you cannot you cannot publish a domain object which is not valid, and you cannot throw an exception because uh, exceptions are not uh, good citizens of functional programming. So the basic idea is this: enforce uh, uh, to make to make uh, domain objects. To publish only valid domain objects or indicate to the user that I couldn't co- construct a domain object out of this and do this in a referentially transparent way through pure values and not through exceptions.
1: Because if you did it, the, if, if you just in your constructor, if you checked the balance and it was negative, uh, like all you could do is say throw an exception and that's not referentially transparent. But if right. we, if we can return a none, which we can't from from just standard construction but in our smart constructor we could have whatever type right, possible right so the standard technique is to make your constructors
2: inaccessible to the general user instead publish smart constructors
1: and this is this is sort of like a like a factory i guess and oh, oh yeah that's end? true that's, yeah yeah so what is a uh cleasley cleasley is one encoding of the
2: reader monad it's uh basically a uh, basically uh Basically a function, basically a function, function application, but the abstraction Cleasley gives you, uh, gives you a number of uh, combinators which you can compose, compose together. So, so that's the advantage of using Cleasley over native function, co- native function application. So when I say Cleasley option A, B, it's actually means that uh, A to option B or some, some, something like that. I, I forgot the order of this, but it, it takes an option. It takes an A. And gives you an option B. So it's basically a function which takes an op, takes an A and gives you an option B. But the moment you declare it as a Cleasley, in that case you you uh, you have at your disposal lots of combinators which the Cleasley abstraction gives you. So in the book there are there are there are I think there are some examples where where I use the combinators on Cleasley to to design some DSL kind of thing which makes the code much more readable. And composable labels.
1: Yeah, because Kleisli gives you the uh, and then right. You can kind of you can kind of chain these things and then apply right. Uh, right. at the end. Yes. I mean, I guess like circling back to the to the whole main topic. I guess you know that's one of the key points. Is I think if you if you're using these these algebras like Kleisli uh, or a monoid, um, there exists uh, like combinators and and higher order functions that that give you functionality. Um, that you don't have to write is that one of the advantages
2: of this approach? Yeah, that's one of the advantages. And the other advantage is that using algebra-based programming, you, there is a clear separation between the construction of your abstraction and the execution of your abstraction. For example, if you use monix task or if you use cats io, you can build you, you you can build your entire abstraction before you can execute it. So there's a clear separation between the two phases which is not so straightforward. If you use abstractions like future, you don't have this delineation.
1: Yeah. It's that, that separation. I think that makes a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah, that's true. So you work at uh, Lightbend. Um, what, what is it like to work there? What, what are you working on?
2: Yeah, actually I'm working on uh, working on a, on a team called fast data team where we are developing uh, a tool sets for uh, streaming platforms. And, uh, very recently over the last uh, 3 4 weeks i was working on a on a library on kafka streams and uh, last week we open sourced it also so kafka streams has a java api but those apis are very painful to work with if you if you are working with scala so we wrote a couple of libraries for uh, scala libraries and open sourced it and we are planning to have them integrated with the Kafka community also. So I, I was mostly working on this over the last three, four weeks, but generally I'm working on this uh, streaming platform tool set, which we call the fast data platform of which for which uh, 1.0, the general level GA has been, GA is out and, uh, yeah, uh, looks quite interesting and looks quite exciting to me. So what, what is uh, fast data? yeah fast data is uh, fast data is a platform where you get uh, things like spark flink kafka etc built on top of dcos mesos dcos we are also okay. planning to add, add uh, kubernetes to the equation and you can deploy your applications and the entire management of the resources and the monitoring part will be taken care of by the platform
1: yeah i think this has been a great talk thank you um so much for coming here i, I really enjoyed your book um, it, it took That's me, a lot. there was a lot of concepts that took me a little while to understand, but I, I think it's a great book about uh, kind of this design patterns of functional programming. Okay. Thank you so much Thank
2: for your time. You. Yeah, I loved talking to you as well.
0: So that was the interview. If you like this episode, do me a huge favor and think about who else might like it and, and share it with them. For me, sharing a tech podcast that I like just means sharing it in my company's Slack group. There's an off-topic channel and I just throw it in there. So if it's the same at your work, yeah, share it out. Right now, the main thing I'm trying to do is just grow the podcast listenership. So people sharing it, you know, if they like it, really helps me out. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.